We've been looking at the book of Ephesians. We started last week and we're going to continue today and Lord willing next week. And just a very brief review. Um, Last week we talked about the letter to the church in Ephesus. That Paul wrote this letter to the church. And it's a short book. I'd encourage you all to read it. It's only six chapters long. And in the first three chapters, Paul sort of is dealing with and reviewing doctrine. It's great doctrine. When you hear the word, sometimes you go, oh, good, doctrine. This doctrine is about who you and I are in Jesus Christ. It's awesome doctrine. It's about the blessings that we have as children of God because of Jesus Christ. It teaches us the blessings of the Father. It teaches us the blessings of the Son. And it teaches us the blessings of the Holy Spirit. It's an awesome first chapter. And at the end of that first chapter, there's a prayer. Sometimes you miss the fact that Paul is actually praying for the church in Ephesus he's writing the letter to. And I'm not going to go through the whole prayer, but it's really interesting because he gives us teaching on the doctrine of who you are in Christ, the blessings that are available to us in Christ. And then you know what he prays? Lord, help them get it. Help them get it. Help them understand. That's his whole prayer. It's It's a prayer of understanding. Because he realizes once we get it, Everything changes in our life. Everything will change. And then there is a second prayer that we're going to get to today that's got a little different take on it because after these first three chapters, and we're going to be looking in chapter two, but after the first three chapters, he transitions from all of the doctrinal stuff and all the things that we are in Christ and the position we have in Christ to what it should look like. What it should look like in our lives. How we should live it out on a daily basis. You know, all of these wonderful blessings, all the things that God has done for us, making it possible for us to become His children. He didn't do it just for our benefit. It's amazing blessings, and there's a wonderful fruit in all of that, but He did it that we would also represent Jesus Christ to the world. And to do that, we can't just look like the world. You'll see what the world is described like, what, what most of us were before we responded to the invitation by God to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So in chapter 2, that's where we're going to start. And chapter 2 transitions from the identity that we have in Christ and all the wonderful blessings we have in Christ more to the position that we have in Christ. And if we can get our identity in Christ and our position in Christ settled in our heart and settled in our mind, your life will be totally different. The enemy is going to lose all those wide open targets that he can shoot at us with all the time. All those lies and deceptions that that tell you silly things like you're a loser. No one could love you. All that you've done, guilt, shame, condemnation, you're not good enough. You're a child of God. Purchased by the blood of Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. You've been blessed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with all of these spiritual blessings. And then he starts into chapter 2 and he says, oh, and that's not all. There is a position that you have in Christ that goes with that identity that I have for you. Now, as I said last week, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Even though we put them up there, there's just something about having it in your hands. 
and figuring out where all the books are, seeing it for yourself. And, and if you're like me, you can make notes in your Bible and underline. You know that's not a sin, right? Does everybody know that it's not a sin to write in your Bible? Okay. You're going to leave and say, Jesus, does he preach heresy? <laughs> Highlight it, write in it, underline, make notes. Do what it takes so we can learn it. The first three verses of chapter 2, I think I'll go ahead and read those. For this reason, I, Paul... Whoops. That's how chapter 3 starts, just if you're wondering. (laughs) Chapter 2 actually starts this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Well, that's good news. At least he used the word were. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as all of the rest of them. Now, we might think that we aren't as bad as all the rest of them, but before we got saved, that's us. We were dead in our sin. Dead, spiritually dead in our sin. And he's saying, this is what you were. You says you were giving in to the lusts of the flesh. I mean, anybody know that your flesh wants stuff? Man, you, know, you just wish it would stay dead, don't you? We've got to kill it every day. Those desires, those lusts of the flesh. You're saying that's what you gave in to all the time. He says, you indulged in all of these desires of your mind. Man, you let your mind wander, and boy, it'll take you places you don't want to go and you shouldn't go. And somehow we sometimes forget that God knows our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. He says, that's where you were. You just gave in to those desires. And then he he says this this phrase in verse 3. You were children of wrath. That's kind of a nice way of saying you were doomed. Until you accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you not only were controlled by your flesh and the desires of your fleshly mind, you were doomed. Doomed to what? Hell. We were condemned. He's saying, this is who you were. This is who you were. Man, that makes everything he told us in that first chapter about who we now are even that much better. Because that's who we were. We're no longer that. And then he starts in verse 4. Now, I've said before, sometimes when you see the words, but God, you get a little nervous. This is one of those times you go, yay God. Because he says, but God, while you were dead, everything changed. While you were dead, God, in his mercy, did something for us. You know, the mercy, what is mercy? I I just remember it this way. It's when we don't get what we deserve. That's mercy. He says, in his mercy, what did we deserve? We deserved death, condemnation, eternal separation from God. But in his mercy, he didn't give us that. Because of his great love, it says, because he loved, we sang about his love this morning. And it's easy to sing those songs. It's easy to get even wrapped up in the music because we like music. But if they don't come from our heart, it doesn't mean anything. When we sing about his great love, that part's always true. His love is that great. But when we start singing about our love for him, I hope it's true. But it isn't always. 
And he, Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, because that's one of the things he stressed, he, he warned them, be careful of false doctrine. Watch those teachers that are going to come in. They're going to teach you some bad stuff. Watch out for those guys. And love. Love one another. Love the Lord. What did he do? Because of his great love, he decided to save us. Did you know that Jesus died for every human being that's ever been born or ever will be born? He died for everyone. But it didn't save everyone. It has the potential to save everyone. But we have to receive that gift of salvation. So he's died for everyone, all mankind. But only those who respond to the invitation to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are truly saved. But because of his great love, he decided to save us. He decided to give us life. We were dead in sin, and he decided to. Not because you deserved it. Man, we didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. He did it anyway. If you're here and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're somehow believing some screwy lie that the enemy's put in your head, that you're just too bad. What you did is too evil. It's too dark. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The blood of Jesus was for all sin. No matter how dark you think it might have been. He died for everyone. He gave, up, gave us life. And then he says, he raised us up with Christ. And now he's getting to that position in Christ. And he says, he seated us in heavenly places with Christ. Now I realize you're all sitting in Victory Church in Ballatin. So what in the world is he talking about? Positionally, this is who we are. We are children of God because of what Christ did and we accepted that gift. And positionally, we are seated in heavenly places with Him. Positionally, that's where we're at. What does that mean? That means we have an authority in Christ. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That right hand, that position of authority on the right hand of the King. And He says, that's where you sit. Positionally, you're right there. Joint heirs with Christ. And boy, you know, we maybe have heard this so often, we can sit here and just kind of be, that's kind of cool. I don't feel like it. This is new teaching to these people. This would be blowing them away. This is who you are. You don't have to go through all that sacrifice, all that ceremonial junk anymore. You don't have to have that earthly high priest who's going to go in and, and make atonement for your sins. It's there for everyone, all of us. And it's all by grace. All by grace. Mercy's not giving us what we did deserve. Grace giving us what we don't deserve. Did I say that right? Only sort of? My wife's a tough one. Mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. He made it, was that better? Would someone else correct me? Because I get this complex when it's just Cindy. <laughs> Thank you, Arnie. Thank you, brother. <laughs> and then he goes and stops there. You know, he says it's all by works, and that famous verse, or all by grace, it's not by works lest any man should boast. We have nothing to brag about. It doesn't matter how, how, what you think you are before you're saved. You're just dead and doomed. We're all in the same boat. When we get saved... You know what? It's so cool. We're still all in the same boat, but it's a different boat going a different direction. 
It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, how much money you make or don't make, what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you do. It doesn't matter. We're children of the King, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, seated in heavenly places with him. And then Paul goes on, and he says something else, that we are now his workmanship. And what he's stressing there is, you're now new creatures in Christ. You were dead, you were doomed, you were giving in to the lust of your flesh, that's who you were, you're dead, that's gone now. That old person has died, you're now the workmanship of Christ, you're a new creature in Christ. All the old stuff is dead. Now wouldn't it be sweet if he dug a dig hole and threw it all in there so we couldn't go dig it up? But it's done. We need to believe it, claim it, and surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go back and pick up all that old junk. Those things that used to control our flesh, used to control our thinking. We don't have to be bound by that anymore. But he won't make you think differently. He won't make you give it up. We have to choose. We're that new creation in Christ. And it's all there for us. The potential's all there because he did it all. And he does talk about the Gentiles. And basically, we're Gentiles. We were Gentiles. And at that time, when he's talking to these people, the Gentiles, and I mentioned this last week, they had no hope. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. The Messiah was coming, in their mind, for the Jewish people. The Gentiles, they used the word aliens. They were not part of the family of God, and there was only one way to even get into that, and that you had to become Jew. And you had to go through all this stuff and become Jewish. But now he's saying that's done. The blood of Jesus Christ has torn down any barriers. It's for all of us now. We are no longer aliens, separated. In verse 13 of that chapter, he does, has another but now. And that but now says, In Christ, by his blood, all the barriers are gone. By his blood, his shed blood. Meaning you and I have access to the Father. Every single one of us that know Jesus our Lord and Savior have access to the Father. We do not need to go to anybody else or any other man or woman and say, hey, would you talk to God for me? We can, we're glad to, to talk to God with you, but we don't have to talk to God for you. No one does. You have complete access because of what Jesus did. Complete access. And then he says in, I think it's verse 18, let me look here quick. That's where it says, For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so we're no longer strangers or aliens. And then he finishes that, bur- that, that section of Scripture in chapter 2 by talking about the fact that, that we are all being built together. He gives this picture like the building of a temple. Because you and I are now the temple of God. And he says, we are being built together. Everybody is being built together, knitted together. And he's preparing for what he's going to come with in the aspect of unity. He said, we're built together, part of the building, temple of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, he takes a little bit of a leap and he starts talking about his ministry, his stewardship of his ministry. We're not going to spend too much time on it. But he's explaining that the mystery had been revealed to him. And that mystery was simply that the barrier was coming down between the Gentiles and the Jews. There was no longer a barrier that the Messiah, Jesus, came for all mankind. 
not just to the Jews. And he says that he was called, and he was called to go and proclaim that message to the world. And he talks about his ministry and his faithfulness to that ministry. And then he decides at the end of uh, chapter 3 to pray for the people again. And I do want to read this with you, starting in probably verse 14. The first prayer was that they would understand. Now he's going to pray that they would be enabled, they would be empowered to do what a new believer should do. Starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And then he says, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. How is that for a powerful prayer? Paul is praying that for the church in Ephesus and he's praying it for us. The same prayer applies to us. That we would be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit in our inner man. When we become a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in every single one of us. Every single one of us. That Holy Spirit is in us. We get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need to stay filled with the Holy Spirit. Every day, get filled with the Holy Spirit. That that power is there for us. Because Paul knows that the world wants to drain our power. Wants to weaken us. But he's praying that that power would be there. And that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Love. If you were in a Bible study, you see in Galatians, Paul's talking about love. Here in, Eph- in Ephesians, in the, to the letter to, the Eph- to Ephesus, it's a love. Rooted and grounded in faith, in love. And he's going to stress it more and more in this chapter. And then he says in verse... 18. Could you pull that one up again? I don't know what word that translation says. Verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and depth. And he goes on. That word comprehend, it's not the best translation. That word is more appropriately would have been apprehend, to seize. To grab a hold of. Not just to comprehend it, which to me gets this, gets this mental image in my mind that we'd understand it. Yeah, that's important. That can be part of the definition. But the primary meaning of that word is that you would apprehend it. Apprehend what? How much God loves you. You know what? We have to grab that by faith. Believe it. Walk in it. We need to convince ourselves, talk to, talk to ourselves, tell ourselves who we are in Christ. Now you might say, gee, this is getting into some psycho stuff here or new age mysticism. 
No, what I'm saying is, you and I have been so programmed with crap, junk. (laughs) The kids are gone. (laughs) We are so programmed with lies that we have to reprogram our brain, our new way of thinking. And we're just going to take what the Word of God says and let the Word of God wash and renew our mind. Who are we in Christ? What is our position in Christ? He loves you. I don't care how abused you've been. I don't care how those who should have loved you mistreated you. I don't care if you had a horrible father. I don't care if you've had terrible marriages. It doesn't matter. Yes, it's, it's, I, we feel sorry for you. But you know what? Don't let that impact the way you think of God. He loves you. He loves you. Paul's praying, God, oh, Lord, help him. Grab a hold of it. Apprehend how much I'm loved by God. Because when you get that, it really doesn't matter what the world says or thinks. It just doesn't matter. And if you and I are called to be peculiar people, if we're called to be salt and light, if we're called to go out there and we are going to be persecuted, we are going to be an offense to some people. And if we aren't grounded in the fact that He loves us, He died for me. I'm his child. If we're not grounded in that, we'll start to have fear creep in. We'll start to be a little bit worried about rejection, what everybody's going to think. And before long, we're going to become right back where we were looking like the world. Following Christ isn't easy. It'll cost you something. But when you are loved by the creator of the universe, everything else should pale. You're loved by the creator of the universe. And Paul is praying, oh Lord, that they could apprehend that, that they could grab a hold of it, seize it. It surpasses our natural understanding. And then he says that they might be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God. This love is the greatest motivator there ever was. This love. You grab that love. You receive that love. You experience that love. I mean, just think of it in the natural. Now, I was standing up here with Pastor Bob, and we're looking at, at Dylan and Brita in that wedding ceremony. And I came to that word cleave, you know, when the, the man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, which means they're going to adhere to it, stick to it, no matter what. There's nothing that can separate that. When we get the concept of that kind of love, that God has that kind of love, we should have that kind of love towards Him. The fullness of God. It will motivate us. You know, I asked Dylan, I said, Dylan, how much luck would somebody have running in the church here and taking Brita and saying, I'm taking her, you're never getting her back. Over my dead body. Is that going to happen? When we have that kind of love, we receive that kind of love, it's going to stir in us that love for the Father that we can return to Him. And everything else will fall by the wayside. That doesn't mean you have to walk away from your life. Goodness sakes, God's called you and placed you where you're at. But we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be in in anxiety about all these things all the time. exceedingly abundantly. You want to get excited, do a word study on that. You have, just think of this. How many of you just think, well, the woe is me, the Eeyore mentality. 
Everybody know who Eeyore is? Who's Eeyore? Help me out, Dylan. Who's Eeyore? Yes, you do. Eeyore's walking around all the time. Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Nobody could like me. Woe is me. To do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Man. Forget the Eeyore. Superman in Jesus. Exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can even imagine. Because of the power that lives within us, the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. Who knows what God wants to accomplish through your life or mine? Don't let lies, don't let other people, don't let your insecurities, your strongholds hold you back from whatever that exceedingly abundantly is in your life. Grab it by faith. And as we get to chapter 4, he says these words, I therefore. In other words, because of everything that I've been telling you about who you are in Christ, what position and authority you have in Christ, because of all that, he's now shifting from doctrine to personal responsibility. And he starts out with something that is absolutely critical, walking in unity. Is there unity? Can we create unity? Or is it our job to maintain unity? I get confused about that sometimes. But as I've been studying this, I realize when we walk in here is if we are all believers, and we'll assume that for a second, we all have the Holy Spirit living in us, there is unity. We are called to maintain that unity. That's what we're called to do. To maintain that unity. And and Paul is going to tell them that, you know, there's some attitudes, there's a basis for that, there's a reason we should be unity, and there will be fruit of it. It's required of us to walk in unity, to maintain the unity. And we're going to go kind of quickly through this, so if you take notes, you might want to just jot down a few things to put up there. But in verses 1 through 3, he gives us five attitudes that are necessary for us to remain in unity. And you'll see why. If there's unity here because of the Holy Spirit, and we mess up in these areas, the unity is going to disappear pretty quickly. And we need to be in unity. The first one is humility. Humility. Knowing who we are in Christ. Thinking more highly of others than we think of ourselves. It's not turning into a Christian wimp. That's not what it's about. It's just knowing who we are in Christ and esteeming others more highly than ourselves. Humility will maintain unity. Second one is gentleness or meekness, depending on your translations. Not weak, meek. Again, it's a power under control. I mean, Jesus was a meek man, Moses was a meek man, but Jesus is such an example. He could have, done, he could have called 10,000 angels and, and hung on that cross and jumped off the cross and destroyed everybody. Just because he had the power doesn't mean he did it. Meekness means that we have control of that power, of authority. Power under control, not weak. Patience and long-suffering. How many of you know the person sitting next to you is not perfect? 
I'm not talking about what they think of themselves. They're not perfect. Patience and long-suffering means, you know what? We, because of the unity of the Holy Spirit, are, we can put up with our differences. We can put up with the reality that we, got some, we have some annoying habits. We do some annoying things. I mean, I even think I annoyed Cindy once. <laughs> well, I could be wrong. Patience and long-suffering. Forbearance in love. To endure because we love someone. To endure because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. To endure when you wrong me, I don't have to retaliate. I can endure in love. And notice the fifth one is diligence. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to work at doing these things? But how many of you know those first four things I mentioned don't come easy? As a matter of fact, I am really, really pretty good at the exact opposite of all four of those. And he's saying, be diligent. Be diligent. It requires effort. These virtues don't come naturally. He says, these five attitudes, he says, they will maintain unity. Guard unity at all costs. And he says, the basis for this unity or the grounds for this unity, and Bob hit on a couple of these phrases this morning. I just got the seven ones. He says, there is one body. There is only one universal church of Christ. One. Everybody who believes in Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior and surrenders their life to Him is in the church. There's one body. It doesn't matter what it says in the front of the church. But just because it says they're a church doesn't mean they're part of the body either. But there is one body. He says there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who comes to in unity to maintain that bond of peace, it says. We have one Spirit, one body, one hope of your calling. You know, there's nothing that breeds competition and disunity. Ever, ever been in the workplace and there's one promotion available and there's two or three people vying for it? Isn't it wonderful to watch the unity that those two or three have as they vie for that position? Well, here we have one hope of our calling. We are all called heavenward. And guess what? There's plenty of room in heaven for all of us. Plenty of riches. Whatever Jesus is preparing for us, there's enough. We don't have to compete. One hope. One Lord. There is only one Jesus. There is only one Messiah. There is only one Lord. People may claim that we all serve one God and they come from a Hindu or Muslim religion. If Jesus Christ isn't there, it's not the same God. They're wrong. As Christians, we can get accused of being narrow-minded and intolerant. And you know what? We are. Because the Bible is. Doesn't mean we don't love. But we're not going to stand and listen to lies. There's one Lord. One faith. There is one body of truth. There is one word. There is one book. The Bible. That's it. Only one. Doesn't matter what they call any of the other books. They don't matter. They don't count. There's one faith. One baptism. He's not talking about the mode of baptism. Whether you, you immerse or throw some water on them or whatever it is you do. He's talking about there is one baptism. There is one consecration into the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Consecrated. And lastly, one God and Father of all. God is the transcendent Father of all mankind. 
He says, those seven ones are the basis of our unity. And then he transitions and says, but because this is hard, I'm going to give you some gifts. And I'm not going to spend much time on them. I'm going to just give them to you quick. Apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There they are. They're grace gifts. Jesus said, when I go to the Father, I'm going to talk to him and we're going to send you some gifts. The church needs these gifts. Why? To train up the body to do the work of the ministry. How many of you think because I get a salary, I'm supposed to do it all? You're wrong. First of all, I'm terrible at most of it. You wouldn't want me to do it all. The elders aren't supposed to do it all. The deacons aren't supposed to do it all. The leadership's not supposed to do it. We're to train. We, as the body, that does include the leadership. But we are to do the work of the ministry. And the main call of these positions is to do what? Train. Teach. Raise up. And we're supposed to continue to do it until the church reaches perfection. How many of you know the church has not reached perfection yet? So I personally believe, because of that, apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors are still for today. All five. All five. We need them all. Some people teach some things contrary to that. Be aware of false teachers. No. Be aware of false teachers. They sneak in amongst you. The purpose of the gifts to equip. But he finishes this section in verse 16 by saying, you know what, all of this... All in love. All in love. He comes back. All in love. I'll reread verse 16. 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects unto him who is the head of church, head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, being fitted together and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If there's not love, there will never be unity. And I would say the opposite holds true. If there is disunity, there is a severe lack of love. So we're going to finish up Ephesians next week. I encourage you to read it. We went over it so quickly. Almost every point I mentioned could have been a whole message. So let's close in prayer. We're going to bless the food, invite you to stick around if you can and enjoy it with us. If there's not enough seating because I think some of our tables and chairs are still down at the reception area, we'll just figure something out. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the truths of your word. God, I pray that we are drawn to your word by your Holy Spirit, that we would have an appetite, a thirst that cannot be quenched from anything else but your word and that the Holy Spirit would bring it to life in our minds and in our hearts. We pray, God, for the food that we're about to eat and ask you to bless it to our body's use. Pray for each one as we go our different ways this week. God, help us to, to really be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading. God, that we can truly be the hands and feet of Jesus as we go forth as his ambassadors. And Lord, we ask all of this that you'd receive the glory and honor in your Son's name. Amen.